You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Every life is testimony to courage, wonder, despair, searching, talents, doing, not doing, and every life of each one of us has its blessings and challenges. Our guest this hour, whose music you just heard, is an artist, poet, author, entrepreneur, singer, and philanthropist. She has written a beautiful book that any reader will see as a mirror of one's own life as a seeker of who we are why we're here on earth together, and what we all share, and most importantly, how to discover this architecture of all abundance, the title of her New World 2001 release. Join Lenedra Carroll as she takes us from Alaska to California, from childhood to adulthood, and also managing her daughter Jewel's singing career as well as you can hear her own music. Lenedra indeed reveals the path we each create in finding out how we can be the best human beings we can be. With that said, let us welcome Lenedra Carroll to our program. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here, Zahara. It's, it's so exciting having uh, met you at the event and, and talked about this a while ago. We did. A couple of months ago, we bumped into each other at Gloria Steinem's, and it was. Um, I walked right up to Lenadra and I said, are you a writer? <laughs> I looked at her like she was uh, mad <laughs> and said, how, how did you know? That was a silly question, of course, because uh, Zahara is a wonderful and intuitive woman. By the way, I'm, I'm really loving your book, uh, the, the Kabbalistic Teachings of the Female Prophet. Thank you. I'm finding so much there that really resonates I'm so glad. You know, I write such scholarly books trying to preserve the tradition as it speaks to itself, not just sort of in transcendent consciousness language, which I'm comfortable with. And so I've I've tried to like really be true to the ancient Hebrews way of saying things about revelation and charity and kindness and unity consciousness and all those good things. Yes, it's, it's wonderful uh, wisdom and messages for these times. Even though it's not my tradition, uh, it really did speak to me and, and is speaking to me. Well, that's the best compliment one can get when somebody outside a tradition you know, can see the reverence that at least I hold for the tradition. But look, let's, let's focus really on the beauty of your book. And I read it today, and I enjoyed it tremendously. And I have to say, your childhood stories make me adore your parents. <laughs> Such wonderful people. So growing up in Alaska, why don't you tell us, Lenedra, how I, because what I sensed was you got skills most of us don't have a chance to develop so naturally. Skills and values uh, that are, I would say, though, um, quite common to rural life in the United States, probably, than Alaska was especially rural when I was growing up. My parents homesteaded there in the late 30s, and... So they lived on a homestead, and and uh, in some of my early years, we were on a homestead. My father, at a point, built a an airplane, taught himself then how to fly, and became a bush pilot. And we lived a, a little more. He lived a less conventional life, and we had a nice, nicer home and that kind of thing. But it was a place where. In those, in those years, community was so valued, and you had to get along with one another and help one another in order to survive. And so there was really a different 
kind of feeling than in a larger city, and a value for uh, self-sufficiency as well as uh, creativity, very much uh, for creativity, for thinking in an unusual way and solving your problems with things that, it, that were at hand. So, uh, and then this whole wonderful nature that was there with such a small population. It was a wonderful way to be reared. Oh, and it's just beautiful. I mean, you describe some stories I hope we'll have time to share about taking a plane trip in 1990 and looking at this jellyfish configuration. But I did want to say to you, after looking at your stories about whether it was your father building an airplane, learning to fly and becoming a bush pilot, or you're being tired of snowshoes and wanting something better, and he builds a snowmobile, and it dawned on me that your father was an architect of abundance. He really was, and he had, he had such a great impact on my life. Though he was uh, an alcoholic, and he and my mother were very ashamed of that and did a great deal to try to protect us and hide it. But yet he still gave me such rich gifts. He, I would look at him of an evening sitting there just staring. And at a point, you know, as I grew just a little older as a child, I began to wonder what he, I could tell he was thinking. And that fascinated me, and I would ask him what he was thinking about. And he would say he was figuring something out. And then there would come a time when he'd get up out of his chair one evening, and he'd go downstairs and he'd start building something. He was also an inventor, and so he would be sitting there thinking, now, fishermen really need something that could reel their nets in this way. And if you made this and then did that and then added this to it, you could actually get it to do something much better for everybody. And then he'd go down to his workshop mm-hmm. and build it. Well, it's a, and I it's, got to see that process, and it became my own process. And you describe it in so many different situations. I wanted you to share with the audience something that I found just, A, so delightful that you kept a record of your childhood revelations, but the one, the story of the rabbit and the chicken, I just think it's such a beautiful telling of that there is wisdom in our childhood that if the adults around us nurture, we become such great, loving humans. Yes, that that was such a, that was really a revelatory moment for me as a child on a lot of levels. It was, I, I would say, about sixth grade, fifth, sixth grade, and they were um, kind of taking us, preparing us for science and away from health. And we had a story about a scientific experiment that was done that was uh, to take a little baby rabbit away from the rabbits and have it be raised by a hen because hens are known to raise the young of other animals. And at a point then... Uh, when the rabbit had learned some unusual behaviors, didn't exactly uh, walk like a chicken, but it didn't exactly hop in quite the same way as a rabbit. And it had a way of kind of pecking its, eating its food and more darting movements and things like this. And then at a point when it was uh, more grown, they took the rabbit from the hen back to the rabbits. And I thought as a child, this is going to be so cool because the rabbit is going to realize, oh my gosh, I'm a rabbit, not a chicken. And what I heard instead was that the rabbit was terrified and cowered in the corner and the other rabbits isolated it and wouldn't have anything to do with it um, and in fact were threatening to it. 
and it was terrified and shaking and went off of its food and water, and ultimately it was put back with the chickens. And this just blew my little mind. I thought, oh, my gosh, that's how it all is. And I loved this story, and I told myself the story to entertain myself while I was at the bus stop or, you know, in, in those many boring moments in childhood. And I would pull out the story and think about, oh, this is how it is. This is how you learn. You learn to be what you are by what is around you and what is taught around you. That's how it is. And then one day, I remember standing cold and freezing at the bus stop thinking about this story and suddenly going, what am I learning about being human? What am I learning? And I had this young feeling of something being wrong in my family, something being kind of off that I didn't know how to understand or really think about, so I didn't think about it in that kind of way. But I had this scared feeling that maybe I wasn't learning the things, maybe because nobody talked in my family and, and things were, were odd. It was the alcoholism I didn't know. But I became afraid that I wasn't learning the right things, that I wouldn't know how to be a, a good human being. Then I thought, oh, wait, they're teaching us that at school. I just haven't noticed. And so in the way that we had learned in the experiment, um, you keep your, your you know, a list of things you're learning on your clipboard. And so I had a little uh, notebook that I made notes in. I went to school to go to, with a heading, how to be a good human being. And I thought I'd fill that up in no time. And there was not, almost nothing that went in that. Then I realized with relief, oh, that's going to be a church. And so I went to church with a different point of view, with my little notebook, listening carefully to everything that was being said. And I heard things you, like you shouldn't be this and you should be that, and there seemed to be a lot about rules and and doing things wrong and that type of thing. But I still didn't feel like I was understanding what it was to be a really good human being and how you got there. And that frightened me. That really frightened me. I thought, isn't this being this most important thing? Isn't it being taught? Why isn't it being taught really clearly? But then I began to realize as I kept my mind on this, my eye on this, I had the idea that I could look at people who it seemed to me must understand because they were really, it seemed really good, or they had happy lives. And I tried to listen and hear what they were saying. And gradually I began to see that it's largely through story that we do this. Because if we, if we hear another human being's story, though it may not be our own, we will know what it is to be human. And if we listen to the stories of others and if we look at our own stories, we come to understand how to become human. We hear how other people overcame difficulties and, you know, that kind of thing. And that inspires us and teaches us how to be. Well, you know, in, in your book, there's just so many things we're not going to be able to get to tonight. And I want to encourage my listeners to order this, The Architecture of All Abundance, 
Seven Foundations to Prosperity. You know, as a child, you were obviously um, a deep thinker, seeker, searcher, which a lot of times is fostered by being in the natural environment because the broadness and the quality of of nature around us inspires us to think more deeply and more richly. At least that's my experience. I also was a child that lived in and among nature, and it shaped my entire life pursuits, I believe. You you talked about as a child also, you then discovered that you can come to know things, and you tell this wonderful story about getting frostbite and your mother instructing you to do something and you're refusing, and then you discovering a better method which actually worked. What was astounding was, A, that your parents listened to you and you took control, but more so you said you, you came to see things as a dream machine. You created your own dream machine or how you come to know something. In this, I think children have a lot of faith in themselves and it's helpful for all of us to remember our childhood because we have, we do as children have an assumption that we can know and it's something we can access now and this was for some reason especially strong in me, and I think you're right about nature. Um, And also, um, there was something about how I was reared in Alaska. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think also something um, that, you know, was unusually me as a child. Oh, for certain. I mean, the stories. Why do, why, I, I love the stories you write. You're a wonderful storyteller, a beautiful weaver. Share the, the quick one, if you would, of when you met a visitor at church and what happened afterwards. It's a great story. Well, uh, it's a very unusual story and a kind of a mystical story that I didn't remember, actually, until... Uh, quite some years later, I had a small pouch that I'd had, seems like I'd always had. I'd never thought about where it came from. I just had always had it. And I was sitting at uh, my desk. I was about 35 um, and just playing with this pouch. And suddenly it struck me, this pouch, where is this pouch from? And I opened it and I poured out these little jewels that were in it that had always been in it. And and I, I thought, gee, it's funny, I can't remember anymore where I got this. It must have been when I was a child. And I was just sitting there thinking that when all of a sudden I remembered the man who gave it to me just before I turned 12. And I remembered that he visited our house and that he set up an easel and he was painting, that he did some portraits of me that um, I still had that were in some boxes in the basement. And I thought, who was that person? And I remembered some things that he said to me. So I rang my mother, and I said, Mom, I'm just remembering this guy who who I think he visited us or something. She said, Ledger, that was such a, an unusual thing. She said, you know our family. We never had company. Um, Jay, just, uh, you know, we, we couldn't have anyone come and visit when he was drinking. Um, but she said, one day at church, there was a man that was new there, and he came up to me, and he said, are you Arva Carroll? And uh, when I said yes, he said, well, I hear that you um, have rooms that you let people stay in. And that was just the farthest from the truth in our family. So my mother kind of stammered, and in that stammer, he said, well, thank you very much. I would love to come and stay with you. 
And it happened that my brothers and my father were out moose hunting. It was that season, and they were at moose camp. And so my mother was able to just let him come. And he stayed in my brother's rooms downstairs, and he set up an easel in the living room, and I sat uh, with him, and he painted me, and he painted some other pictures, and he told me stories. He told me, really, stories about life and how to have a wonderful life in a way. They were stories about being an artist and being creative. And this was very important for me because I'm first and foremost an artist. No matter what I'm doing, it's always creatively. And my mother, in telling me this, uh, said, you know, it it was a really odd thing because he spent most of his time with you telling you stories and yes, I, I do think he did uh, paint you. I don't know whatever happened to it. And I said, oh, I still have that portrait. Um, and she said, uh, he, and then one day um, he just said it was time for him to go. And he left and I was washing dishes and saw him walking down the lane. And it seemed that he just disappeared. And as my mother's telling me this, I'm remembering and I'm having this this kind of full you know, flush along my body um, that is, I think, a receiving of grace, of information, of understanding that is beyond words and that is far more than what the mind might say to me about what that was. So I don't try to say, oh, it was this or that and this is what it meant, Um, nor do I try to remember everything that he said or everything about a circumstance or a story like that, because the important thing is what is beyond words that comes into your being and increases you. And that's grace. That's the grace of that which is God. That's beautifully put, and it's a beautiful story. When we come back, and I, th- I think the audience can see, just even from the way you tell your story to us, um, it has a, a depth of appreciation and an awareness that each of us does this for each other all of the time, only most yeah. of the time we're unaware of the grace we bring into each other's presence. So, ladies and gentlemen, read Lynedra Carroll's book, The Architecture of All Abundance, Seven Foundations to Prosperity. Her music's also available at iTunes, or you can find links to her work at www.21stcenturyradio.com. Lynedra, when we started the show, there was a song we play just a part of called Daybreak Song, and I knew I had heard that before. So that's been a bit around the world, hasn't it? That song has just been such a gift, such a delight to me. It came just all of a piece. It's a simple little song, as you heard, that's uh, almost chant-like, and it just arrived on my birthday um, in, I guess, about 1985, And I was told uh, in that moment that if I sang the song uh, each day, it would change my life, and it really did. When I began to move around the world managing Jewel, which by the the way I retired from in 2003, um, but as I began moving around the world, I had the most wonderful experience of discovering that in a folk process kind of way, that song, Daybreak Song, had moved around ahead of me often. Mm -hmm. I was in the middle of the rainforest in Peru in uh, 95 or 6, and there was a a 
elders who were welcoming us and had prepared excitedly a special uh, song that the school children were singing. And it was that song. It's beautiful. In their language of, in Ashwar. Um, and they didn't know that that was my song. They hadn't done it. That's for that the reason. beauty of your life. I mean, I think, you know, I've read a lot of spiritual autobiographies. There aren't that many that are very good. I cite Paramahansa Yogananda's is my first pick, <laughs> and then Maladame Somes of Water and Spirit. But your book captures the same kind of essence of a human who pays attention to what they hear from the divine spirit within them and outside of themselves and in the reflection of others they engage. And I think one of the gifts of your book, The Architecture of All Abundance, is you really show people that there are many paths to self-observation and clear vision, but one of them, for you and for many people, myself included, is accessing silence. Talk to us a little bit about silence and the role it plays in your own life. I'm a person who has to go frequently um, into the silence, especially in nature. Uh, that, that helps bring me into it more. But each day, um, throughout the day, uh, I have always stopped to drop in, to drop into that. And it has been a, a long-time practice. At this point in my life, I feel that the, the silence uh, now is at the fore in me. But when something is difficult, you know, uh, Wendell Berry wrote a wonderful poem that, that talks about going to nature and the silence of nature for that. It was, uh, when despair grows in me and I wake in the middle of the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drakes rest in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. It's beautiful. And and I think, you know, in sharing something like Wendell Berry's beautiful writing is, is that there's something else that everybody discovers at some point who makes a serious pursuit of examining who they are, their purpose, what's unique, what they have to offer just in being. You know, our presence is the greatest gift we have. But that also comes with the caveat of becoming what you want to see in the world. And Gandhi would speak about that, of becoming the peace you want to see in the world. Yes. In, in, 2000, um, in 2008, I undertook a, another level of journey, really a spiritual journey, a focus, I uh, left behind a house and home and money and bank accounts and possessions, vehicle, um, and I just divested myself of everything. Because what I wanted to do was to change my point of reference. Not that there had been something wrong with where I had been, but I felt that now, rather than the journey uh, you know, in and out of that deeper self and always returning and recentering myself in the deeper self, that I, I wanted to 
seat myself in that self and let my life create itself around me from that place. And I wanted to see, I mean, either either what all of the spiritual traditions say is possible and true, that, that, that one can have a moment of self-realization and become a, a realized being, that the, um, as the Bible mentions it, the, the God essence within um, can be a blazing light in our life and in the lives of others, or it's all just baloney, and I might as well drink beer. And, Why uh, not? You know, and watch TV and quit uh, <laughs> all of this practice. And let's learn to play pinochle while we're at it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and uh, and so I thought, you know, either it's possible or it isn't possible. And if it is possible, it's possible now. And if it is possible, it must be a very simple thing. It must not be something that needs a practice, that um, needs a secret key or a special guru or um, or something like that, it must be something that is innate, that we are made in the image of. And that was what I set out to see, what can a human being really live that in and really have that peace that surpasses all understanding. And I think that freedom there, that freedom, is what we all desire, really. When one arrives at a station, it's it's really not a possession. It's a moment. I mean, at least I can speak from my own life experiences of yeah. moments of revelation aren't titles. They're not banners. They're exceptional sort of doorways that remind us that this is what all humanity is designed to inherit. And I think you and I share similar kinds of um, hope and practice that wants to touch each other person to say, wait, you can do this, that you don't need to go to India and you don't need to spend a lot of money. You need to, like any human who is serious in this work of the soul coming to the forefront of a life, of be serious about what you hear and what you feel and be authentic, be exactly who you are. Yes, that's so well put. And Really, one of the things I'm, I'm really enjoying about the book of yours that I've been reading about the female prophets. Because there's so much there in the tradition that's about these these doorways. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and like yourself, and I've I because I run a big holistic health center, which I founded back in 1985. I've had a beautiful journey in hearing and sharing my story of healing and listening to thousands of people's own journeys, and I like to say that illness is the way body heals itself. And you you have a beautiful experience yourself of the journey of wellness from illness and what it brought into your life. And you talk about that in your book, The Architecture of All Abundance, as being the architecture of health. And I certainly have had many health challenges, and it, it seems that... Uh, Though I honor Western medicine and have turned to it when uh, you know when need be, it has had less to offer me than uh, than alternative medicine and self healing has. And I think that there's a you know that that has to do with my path and my my point of view. I'm not one to um, 
disparage uh, the place of Western medicine. But I remember uh, after a, a later term miscarriage that I had when I was hemorrhaging, um, asking my husband to put his hands on my head and command the bleeding to stop. And he, being too terrified, I said, go get our friends, uh, Jerry and Nelda. He, I know he'll do it. He was a man of great faith. And, and not my husband, of course, feeling responsible. <laughs> and so he got Jerry, and I said to Jerry, just put your hands on my head and uh, command this bleeding to stop. And he did, um, and it did. I was lying in a large puddle of blood by then and some distance away from hospitals in, in Alaska. Uh, and uh, so Western medicine wasn't really available to me in that moment, but this... Uh, feeling that I'd had as a child, and um, the the teachings that came to me through the Bible scriptures had instilled in me a faith and an understanding um, that came into practice at that time. When you look, as one can in reading your book, The Architecture of All Abundance, there's a beautiful place in which you talk about space, the space between things in our body, fitting on, well, I'll let you tell the story, but you talk about it in a very um, practical as well as spiritual way, but that it's connected with sort of the wave of ourselves or the wave of intention. Share that with our audience. Are you uh, referring to when I was having a sort of increased understanding about uh, the wave and how it works? Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, I was just, yes, I was just lying on the grass one day, and uh, I uh, kept being uh, shown a wave that was going out. And um, I, and then and not paying much attention, and then I was asked to uh, pay closer attention. And I had the feeling that, that well, I'm prone to, maybe we all are, um, that, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. I, I know what goes around comes around, you know. Um, what you put out comes back to you. And I I was kind of urged um, to pay a little closer attention and to take that further. And so I, I then stopped and sat up and looked at this image that I was seeing and uh, saw that the, the wave, uh, it was a, a picture first of a something like a stone dropping into the water, and then we saw the ripples going out, which seemed obvious to me. But then I looked, and I saw the wave closer, um, the wave rippling out. And um, and as I watched that wave going out, I began to see that there's the wave going out and that the outgoing wave literally creates the under... Let's say, as an image, the underside of it is the wave coming back to you. Um, and so it is literally that wave that you are putting out that is coming back to you, the very same one. And it was, in a way, I understood that like I hadn't before. And it happened that at the time I was writing this, there we were uh, in the Clearwater Project, we were working with a man who was a, a water engineer, and uh, he said that he'd had to study uh, wave science. And he, he found that, um, he had asked if he could see a little bit of my book, knowing that I was writing, so I had showed him this. And he said he found that fascinating because 
with an understanding of wave science, he said, you're actually talking about something that's literally uh, true. And the way that you're understanding it is a very interesting way of talking about what I've seen. And he said, it, it gives me some added ideas. So he found that very interesting. Well, you know, in so many, we've interviewed so many different quantum physicists and people who really study the physics of light and consciousness and are trying to appreciate how quantum's packets of information are constantly leaving us, coming to us. It's always accessible to us. Of course, great, clear, precise maps are in the silence. That's my experience more than in the noise of listening with my physical ears. And and I so I think throughout your work, and I do when we come back, want to talk about some of your wonderful humanitarian projects that you've done around the world, because you have really lived your practice. And I think that's the bottom line of what all seekers ultimately discover. Nobody can give you passage, and nobody can give you a ticket. You earn the ride, and by your own sort of sheer of showing up. As you say, it's it's not so much which practice we have, it's that we have a practice. Mm. And I, I share that opinion entirely. So going into the break, we're going to hear a piece of music called Edge of Dawn by our guest, Lenedra Carroll. Lenedra, you have a beautiful structure in your book, which I haven't done justice to. The book we're talking about is The Architecture of All Abundance. It's a new page, or is it a new world release? Um, 2001 is that you've broken it down into the architecture of stillness. We touched on that. The architecture of prosperity, architecture of the workplace, the architecture of health we've touched a little bit on, the architecture of love, and finally the architecture of the soul. But I'd like, if you don't mind, to kind of combine architecture of prosperity and architecture of the workplace, because fear seems to be a prevalent, if you will, waveform that... um, has encapsulated the entire planet. Our media plays it up. Fear is a very good weapon for moving people. And love, of course, is the anecdote. But your own ability to listen and to respond made it possible for you to do amazing things in the workplace, not just where you work, but in the lives of so many others with the Clear Water Project and others. So tell us how you work in the workplace and how people can have abundance. In the book, uh, I I answer that question by uh, telling that someone had asked me how on earth someone with my values managed to work in the music industry, which is so shark-infested. And I had to laugh, uh, remembering that when I began in the music industry, I certainly felt the same way, and I had a great deal of trepidation about it. Certainly, I had experiences of sharks fairly quickly, and I, I had shark, you know, responses. I had a fight and, fight and flight response and adrenaline, and uh, and I felt very intimidated uh, by these people who were threatening and uh, blackmailing and so on. Um, and I felt, of course, that I wanted to do well by my daughter for her career. Um, and so I had a lot of tension about it. But I... I thought to myself one day, these are really sharky people, and I feel like, how can I be here? And things are usually not as they seem, as I'm telling myself. So what if they aren't sharks? And what if there's nothing to be afraid of? And what if there's no risk? And I'm going to take a look. 
I'm going to look for how it might be different than it feels, different than it sounds when they're talking, different than it looks, different than everyone says. And so there was a period of time of beginning to watch what was happening and just to observe. And then one day when really one of the sharkiest uh, sharks was really threatening and he was actually threatening to end Jules' career. So it was like he had his big old shark jaw right over my head. Um, And as he came in close like that for the kill, for this big threat, I suddenly saw his eyes. And I realized, oh my gosh, it's all a mask. It's a shark costume. And after that, as I thought about that, it began to delight me. This is a shark costume. That's amazing. And I started, when when such a person would begin their routine, I, I allowed myself to see the costume and to think in myself, you made that costume? That is the most amazing shark costume I have ever seen. Kudos. It must be awfully hot and sweaty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a beautiful image because you, so on. you went on and, to say uh, that. It that... changed everything for mm-hmm. me, and I began, of course, to relate soul to soul. And in a situation like that, I didn't need to proselytize. I didn't need to convince them to use language I would use or to think like I think or to change in any way who they were. I just had to start acting from the soul I am and seeing their soul, not thinking anything about their soul, not thinking their soul needed to move uh, from where they were to over there, no judgments about their soul, no story about their soul, just experiencing their soul while they were going on about their business of being in their shark costume. And when you do that, you end up with a person truly with all the advantages. It's a little like being the only awake person in a, in a room full of people sleeping all over the floor. Mm-hmm. Well, and you and describe so it so great beautifully. It's a responsibility, and it's very humbling that comes with that. When you combine all the different things you reflect on in your, in your book and you talk about the work you've done around the world, I love the Clearwater Project and um, the one, what was it? It was a terrific term. I wrote it down, High Ground for Humanity. Ah, uh, yes. Higher Ground for Humanity is the, the public charity. And the Clearwater Project is a project within Higher Ground for Humanity and was our humanitarian, I mean, our environmental focus. And for many years, it was the primary focus of Higher Ground for Humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have shifted the, the jewel went on to her own for a time, She thought she would take the Clearwater Project, um, but in the end, she has kind of pulled away from, uh, for the time, for nonprofit work Mm -hmm. and is doing other things. But um, I've continued on with Higher Ground, and right now, though the Clearwater Project still exists, it's more of an educational project and maintaining the projects that we had around the world. We were in about 30 different countries. My focus now is an alternative health project called the Holistic Health Initiative. We're rebuilding the website right now, so I I can't refer people to it. 
Um, but soon the Holistic Health Initiative will be there as a project under HigherGroundForHumanity.org. How lovely. And it's an exciting, amazing project with uh, extraordinary potential to, uh, to really be a gift to humanity. So when we look at the architecture of love, which obviously begins with ourselves, as my mother used to say, she'd leave a note. She and my dad would go away for a month each year on a vacation, and she'd leave this, brush your teeth, clean your room, do your homework, don't cause a lot of trouble. And the very last one she always wrote for me was, respect yourself or no one else will. And I remember as a nine-year-old really thinking about what does that mean? I like myself, other people like me. And then it really hit me what she was saying is that if you have a conscience and if you are true to examine your own actions, your words, your thoughts, you will discover that you're not always so nice and you're not always so good. And I discovered that and years later went around apologizing to children I tortured and wasn't good to. And they were grateful that I came to that awareness. But Love is really the glue of the universe. And as you write at the close of your book, you had a realization about the transformation of our species being through the light of the soul. And I have found this to be true in all the traditions of the world from indigenous first peoples to mystical Sufis or Kabbalists or any other tradition. How does it look for you? How does the transformation of the soul mm-hmm. look for me? Well, the transformation of our species, when when you understood ah. that it really is already available to us, meaning this whole notion of sparsity is not true, this whole notion that we have to war is not true, this whole notion that the whole planet's going to have to suffer and global changes is not true. These are mindsets. Absolutely. And we can participate in these mindsets as long as it entertains us. <laughs> um, it, basically, all of that is for our edification and, uh, and our entertainment. But any point that we feel ready, we can stop all the striving and, and all the ego storytelling and, and uh, all, of, all of it, all of it, all of the fearing, all of it. We can just stop it and reside in the grace that is the gift within us. And I think that that's the transformation that humanity is poised on now, has the opportunity uh, greater than ever before. I think that that's what's happening, that grace is moving in us, that grace is moving us, that we can facilitate it, we can and only need facilitate it by saying yes. When others come um, to you, and I'm sure people ask you lots of questions about, well, how can they begin? What can they do? Particularly older people who may say, well, I've lived my whole life. I worked really hard. I raised my children. I have great-grandchildren, but I still don't have peace. What do you say to that? Mm. Mm. Peace is built in. I had an amazing experience in about 1994. I was sitting uh, in prayer and meditation in my sanctuary, and I was shown the earth uh, as though from space, and kind of like I zoomed in on it. And as I came closer, I saw a shadow moving uh, 
uh, moving away off of the face of the earth. And um, as the shadow moved away, uh, the you know the light that was kind of advancing in the shadow was was retreating. And I saw people in uh, in the shadow scurrying to move back their shadowy activities uh, into the shadow, and the shadow kept moving back and the light moving across. It was very beautiful and exciting. And in a moment of excitement, a voice said to me um, that, uh, and I, you know, I, I said, what is that light? And the voice said that we were that light. You are that light, you plural. Um, you who allow the light, who bring the light into yourselves are that light. And um, I had this feeling that peace was coming, and I thought, peace is coming. I was so excited, and then again the voice said, because I could feel all the prayers for peace. From around the world. People in the world. Exactly. Well, look, we are unfortunately out of time, and I like to end on the word peace. I believe it's the whole role for all of humanity. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus.